Imagine if each morning when you wake up, you're smiling and looking forward to your day, knowing you are happy even while you're dealing with grief and loss. The Grief and Happiness Podcast inspires, comforts, and supports you with each new episode. I'm Emily Zerothret, welcoming you to explore with me your life of endless possibilities. Aloha. I am so happy to have you here today. I'm doing an interview that's a little bit different than I have done before because I usually, the people that I talk to were talking about books they've written or things that they do. But with our guest today, she actually wrote a novel and it has a lot to do with grief and things that have happened in the novel. It's really powerful. And I liked it so much. I thought it was important to share. So I welcome today Krishma Aurora. And could you introduce yourself, Krishma? Hi, uh, thank you for having me here today, Emily. My, I, my name is Krishma, and I'm the author of From Ash to Ashes, which is the novel that Emily was just referring to. And I am an author, but I'm also a teacher. I have taught high school social studies for about 11 years. I'm also a mom of four kids uh, and a wife. And I uh, also write poetry. Oftentimes, uh, I post it on my Instagram. And um, so I find that writing is definitely a a channel, uh, an outlet for my emotions. So that's great. Yes, um, this is her book, and I like one of the things I like about it is people tend to learn things about their culture and things that they're familiar with and they know, and this gives you a whole look into a, a different world for a lot of the people who are reading it. So I I like that. I like to see what it's rich. I would you can just visualize what you write uh, when I'm I'm reading it. I can see the the colors and the clothes and the traditions and all the things that you introduced to us to in the the family in the book that you really paint a picture with your writing in a way that I really enjoyed it to to see all that. And it was it was so tragic and it had so many different issues in it that made it uh, compelling to read. It was it was one that wasn't wasn't easy to put down because I wanted to see what was going to happen next. So you're welcome. Can you tell us what inspired you to write this book? Yes. So I actually never intended to write a novel ever. I started writing this book 17, almost 18 years ago after the death of my first child, my um, my son, Kabir, uh, who I actually dedicated the book to. And I started writing as a way of channeling all the grief and the emotions that I was feeling at the time. So I sort of um, just as a way, as a sort of a mental therapy, as a self-healing process for myself, I started writing a story about a family who also experienced a loss. Um, And this way I could sort of, you know, displace all my feelings and emotions on the characters instead of having to 
deal with it all by myself. In a way, I was sort of sharing it. So that is why I started writing it. Um, I never intended for it to become um, a finished no a novel or even finish it. And definitely, I never saw it ever being published. But, you know, here we are now. <laughs> That's so wonderful. I, I'm I'm glad you did publish it because it's it's a good book to be out there. Is this your culture you were writing about, or yes, yes. I um. So there's definitely some similarities between the characters and the family in the book and myself. I am also a, a sick immigrant, just like the characters in my story. They follow Sikhism as their religion. They've come from India. They're immigrants in America. And, uh, you know, I'm the same. I was not born here. I came here about the same year as the protagonist in, in my story, Mira. She comes at the age of five, and I came at the age of four and a half to five as well. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely those parallels. The... Attitudes toward education, I thought, were very interesting. Mm -hmm. I teach at the university level, and, and the university where I teach has such a variety of cultures in, in the classes that I teach. Mm -hmm. it, it was really so, kind of surprising to me. I didn't anticipate that when I first started teaching and found that I had a challenge finding things for, because I teach writing. Um, okay. It had a, a challenge finding examples for students to read that reflected cultures other than typical mainstream white American, you know, mostly right. written by men. Yes. And it, with the, the kind of writing that we were doing in class, I wanted them to have some variety. And I, I ended up, uh, my first book that I wrote was an anthology of writing pieces with writing assignments around them called cultures, diversity in reading and writing specifically because of that issue. <laughs> so wow. I, I really like this one because you, you went into great detail. Uh, the weddings, especially I thought was fascinating. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Did you have a wedding like that? Yes, absolutely. I had a wedding just like that. Uh, and I've attended many family and friends weddings, just like the one in the book. Yeah, the weddings are, you know, very, very festive. And it's, it's a real time for bonding and family reunions and fun and uh, dance and colors and traditions. Um, they're very embedded in tradition. And the fact that our weddings don't last just one day, they can last anywhere from three to five days even. Um, I believe in the olden days, it was even longer. The preparation for a wedding began in the wedding household a month before, where, where family and guests arrived a month before to start preparing with the family for the wedding. Now it's a little bit more complicated than that. People can't go to a wedding for a month. So people try to condense it down into a long weekend. My, my own wedding was over four days. And, uh, you know, we had a separate henna ceremony. We had a separate dinner, like receiving dinner of the, of the groom's family and friends. And that was a party. And then we had a separate night of dance, the Sangeet, as we call it in the book, the night of dance before the wedding. And then there was the wedding and all the traditions that play during the wedding and after the wedding when you give away the bride. And then, of course, the reception 
post-wedding to celebrate the married couple. And so, I mean, there's so many different events that take place. Yeah. You mentioned the henna ceremony. Is that what you uh, called it? Can you, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I've, I've seen it. I had a, a friend who was in a graduate journalism program who actually got to go. I think she went to Pakistan for a wedding that okay. they she had uh, interviewed somebody in the family at the university where she was and uh, to write about the, the culture. And they said, well, it would be really cool if you came to, to a wedding. And she said, sure, I can do that. And they said, it's it's in Pakistan. <laughs> so she, she went there and that one took almost a week. The, the wedding took almost a week. And so she was telling us all about the henna and the henna ceremonies that, because I've, I've had henna done just for fun when I went right. to a retreat once they were doing it. I just, I love it. I think it's beautiful. So yeah. can you tell us a little bit about uh, the significance of that and what it is? Yeah, so the henna signifies, it's like sort of like like the color, it's the color of the, the bride. You know, our brides don't wear white, right? We don't wear a white dress. We, in fact, white is something that's worn, is the color of, of death, what we wear at a funeral. So, but the wedding is always full of color and the bride should usually be, well, well traditionally would be in red or some sort of color off of red, like a maroon or a, like a light. I mean, I personally wore a, a pink, you know, like because I had a summer wedding and so it's like an offshoot of red, but it's always a color uh, for the bride and the henna, the color of the henna symbolizes, I guess, the transformation of, you know, a young, innocent, unmarried virgin girl to a married woman, you know, that's sort of the sign. But it's not just reserved only for the bride, even the groom gets hmm. um, actually some dot or some form of henna as sort of like, we call it a shagun. A shagun is often like sort of a token, like a token blessing, um, you know, of the, of the wedding, of the marriage. And then all the, the, the bride's family, all the women partake in the henna ceremony with the bride because it's sort of they're all sharing this same token of good color, good fortune of the bride and the, the wedding and the marriage. And uh, so they're in the scene in the novel is when they they do all these different things to keep the henna darker so that it dries darker and the color comes out deeper because the deeper and there's so many there's so much folklore around henna and the significance and meaning of it so the bride who has the darker deeper henna it signifies that uh, she will have a great love with her husband you know or or she will have a great love and good relationship with her in-laws with her mother-in-law in particular so there's so much folklore around it because you have to remember that when all this was created, the brides didn't know their husbands. There were often arranged marriages. So it was sort of like almost like a sign before the wedding of what her life in marriage would be like. And so, you know, you see all the, the other girls, the younger girls running to put oil over a hot stove to heat up the pigment into the skin so that their henna would also come out darker, you know, so that their future husbands would also love them. And so there's this, it's almost like it's, it's, it's a fun, it's a fun tradition that, you know, women can bond over. 
I love that. I, I just think that's so it's beautiful to start off with. But the the bonding is is really nice where it's something that you can actually see that ties the people together. Uh, and you mentioned arranged marriages, and there was an arranged marriage in the book. Is that something that's that's done all the time still, or sometimes, or how does it work? Uh, well, arranged marriages have sort of evolved in Indian culture. Um, when my parents got married, they didn't they didn't actually meet each other. The first, the the uncle or the parents, my mother's father met my dad's uncle who brought the rishta, as it's known in the book, which means the, the family, the connection, the relationship, the possible potential marriage to my mother's father. And they discussed who the family was. What did the boy do? What did the girl do? My, meaning, what do they study? And what did, what is their profession? Where do they live? What's their family like? Do we know them through this and that? So there's that. And then there's a photograph. And basically, you know, um, my dad was given a photograph. Uh, before my dad was given the photograph of my mom, his mother saw it. And whether she had to approve it first, approve mm. it first, before she, even my dad saw it. And then my grandfather, my mother's father, showed a picture of my dad. But then there was like, oh, okay. There was no yes or no at this point. Um, then they met at a communal regular wedding. And from a distance, my dad was shown, that's the girl, you know, the one that's like uh, 500 feet away, that one over there between the other girls in that color. So she's the one that they're bringing your proposal. And so this is how my parents were married. They were given, my mother was given a say. I think my grandfather was very um, revolutionary in his time because he did say to my mother, you know, I know you've graduated college and now you're ready for marriage. But if there was ever a boy that you liked in college or there was ever somebody that you know and that you liked and you wanted to marry instead, this would be the time to tell me. And my mother said, no, there wasn't, there isn't. And she accepted whatever proposal her parents brought her. So, but the fact that he offered it to her was a very big thing because usually there wasn't a say, you know, I mean, I guess you could say no, but then you couldn't say no too often. Like you would eventually have to give in somewhere. But arranged marriages are no longer like that today. Arranged marriages are more of like a setup. So I know somebody, for example, the way my brother got married was sort of arranged. A friend of my dad, who was also a common friend of my sister-in-law's, you know, late father who had passed away, you know, knew that both families were looking for someone and they had a daughter and a son about the same age and comparable. And so my brother met her at a Starbucks coffee and they had a coffee and they liked each other. They exchanged numbers. They went on a few dates and they started talking every day and they got to know each other. And then they decided within like three, four to six months, the family was like, okay, now you got to tell us you want to get married. And so they said, yes. So then they got engaged and a year later they got married. So that's really arranged marriage in most circles at least that I in society but it also depends like which demographic are we discussing how educated are these families where are you really from are you a city person in the United States or are you living in a rural village in India where arranged marriages still 
unfortunately happen against some women's will. You know, it, it, this is it's varied, but it has evolved. And that's interesting because when I was reading about the the one kind of sad arranged marriage in, in yeah. the book, I, I was thinking, oh, I I wish there were a way that she, she didn't have to have that but, experience. Yeah, that she could have escaped it. But in her in her experience was very specific because she could have had a setup marriage, but in her case, she didn't have that choice anymore because now she was in a way tainted. Her reputation had been had been marked and she could not escape the consequences of society labeling her in a certain way. So that was sort of her only way out, even though she didn't want to take that route. Wow. It was so sad. <laughs> really yeah. sad. And that, that kind of brings me to grief that there's, there is death in the book, but that's not the only kind of grief there is in the book. Can you yes. talk about the, the different kinds of, of grief and, how how they affected the people it, did it, it was a life-changing just talk about that please mm -hmm. yes yeah, so i wanted to talk about how loss sometimes is not only from a death mm -hmm. loss takes so many forms loss could be a loss of innocence loss of say loss of relationships in terms of like not due to death, but in terms of sometimes breaking up of relationships, there's also a loss um, that people and people grieve, you know, that's what what it means to be heartbroken. And so there's, there's so much loss in the book. And mm -hmm. I, I think every character experiences not only the law, the tragic loss um, of a character who is close to all of them in the book, in, through death, but they also experience other kinds of loss, loss of trust, loss of innocence, and and even I want to say um, the brother Jazz, who is traumatized by by bullying. You know, he he, he experiences that loss um, of himself in a way. He becomes somebody else in order to cope and survive with the trauma that he faces. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of grief and there's a lot of loss. I don't know if you want me to go into more detail about the, the grieving, the grieving mother or the yeah, go, go ahead and, and tell us a little bit about that. Cause it, it's a, so interesting. The, the, the mother in the story is the one who is sort of, bearing the loss with the utmost difficulty compared to some of the other characters who are also greatly impacted by this, but they, they haven't ceased functioning in a way like the mother has. She sort of becomes paralyzed in her grief. So I wanted to show how grief uh, takes so many different, you know, it can be expressed in so many different ways, depending on who you are as a person and also what relationship you may have had with the person who uh, that you've lost. So as the mother, she feels that a part of her own self has died. And there's her grief is accompanied with an enormous amount of guilt. And in a way, you know, sort of like, like a self-destructive 
quality. She doesn't want to enjoy anything. She feels that she doesn't deserve anything that she ever enjoyed in the past. You know, there's that sentence about even if it was just a simple cup of English tea, which was something that, you know, she loved and always had, she wouldn't let herself savor it or enjoy it because she felt that, you know, she couldn't, it would be wrong to, that she should be suffering instead of surviving or, you know, or, or trying to find the silver lining in everything. You know, she wasn't, she wasn't positive. She was lost in the negativity of it. The, the thing that I was picking up on and a lot of it was the, the loss of being able to make decisions for yourself. Mm-hmm that it was either tradition or someone else who had the right or authority to tell you that this is how it had to be. And that, that seemed like such a significant loss. Absolutely. Like the, the, the way, I mean, the protagonist, you know, she's told that you're young and you'll heal from this and that time is a healer and this and that, and she, and that you, you will move on from this. And she's very upset, uh, especially at the funeral scene where she is angry because people are telling her how she should be feeling and how she should be coping and what will happen, you know? And she's saying, but you know, you can't tell me how I should feel and what I should, how long it will take me. You don't know. And, um, and who are you to say, because you don't feel the loss I feel. So that's really interesting because, um, in, in the work that I do, I talk to so many different people who are are grieving and in in different spots and they're grieving when, when I'm talking to them. And so many times people feel like they need to tell the person who's grieving what to do whether they even know them, you know, whether they're close to them or not, or if they are close or they're a relative or something, they feel that they have the authority to do that too. And I, I don't think they're really thinking about it. I think they think they're helping, yeah. but it, it can lead to really sad things that how we communicate in situations with loss and grief is, is so important. Mm-hmm. It is. And, and she she does say that she does say that they probably do people say things when they don't know what to say. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's a universal thing. I, yeah. I think it may be more so in some cultures than others, but it seems like everybody is saying those things. I have a, a colleague, another person who has a podcast and writes books, and he just wrote a book about the stupid things people say to someone who's grieving. And he wrote it because they, he kept hearing examples. So they just kind of put it out there, send us, send us examples so that we can see. And they just poured in. And the book was just astonishing at the incredible things that people will say and why they think it's okay to say something like that. Uh, I, I kept thinking, how would you feel if somebody said that to you? You know, you've been saying it to other people, but what if somebody said that to you? How would you handle it? So, yeah, well, that's that's right. And and in the story, you see that that she makes it very clear how other people can sympathize, but they can't really empathize uh, until they you know have to go through some they experience something like that themselves. You know, and how even the people who are going through it. 
uh, even the family who's going through the grief, the grieving, how they're all grieving so very differently in their own way, and how oftentimes there's a lot of tension between them because they're almost expecting to grieve the same way and they're not even open and appreciative of the other, you know, because they, because grieving is so, what they don't realize is grieving is so personal that you can't expect the other person to even do the same that you're doing. It doesn't mean they're not grieving, you know, it's just, it's just their way of handling it. Yes. Well, I just I think that this is a, a fascinating novel, and I highly recommend it to people to read. A lot of times when we put ourselves in someone else's shoes who really is different than we are, we can kind of see the commonalities in a way that it makes it okay to recognize that, that we're having feelings like that, too, yes. and experiences like that. Um, I, I think that's that's an important thing to to look for. So I really appreciate you sharing all this with us. It's it's such uh, it was fascinating to me. So I'm I'm glad you wrote the book, and I'm glad it's out there available for people to be able to read it. And in the show notes for this podcast, you'll be able to uh, have links so that you can uh, get what you want. You know, get the book and and have access to Krishna. So thank you very much for being my guest today. This was just fascinating. Thank you so much, Emily. I really enjoyed talking with you. And uh, thanks for having me on the show. Oh, my pleasure. And to our guests, be sure to come back next week. We'll have more interesting things to talk about. Every week we have somebody new to explore our thoughts and feelings about grief and happiness. So I'm Look forward to seeing you all again, and thank you for listening today. Do you want more comfort, support, and happiness? Join the Grief and Happiness Alliance. Visit my website at lovingandlivingyourwaythroughgrief.com and read my book, Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast, rate it, review it, and binge on all our episodes on grief and happiness. I can't wait to welcome you back to another episode.